Hello everyone and uh, today I'm joined in the reading corner by Patrick Skipworth. Patrick is the managing editor of What on Earth Publishing, a publisher that's dedicated to producing high quality non-fiction for children. Patrick joined the company as a researcher writer in 2014 and now has the overview of the development of the core list. He studied classics and classical languages at UCL and then a master's at Leiden University in the Netherlands, where his thesis, I understand, and I'm quoting here, uh, was an analysis of a poorly understood character in a Near Eastern script. Today, we're going to be talking to Patrick about his latest book, Literally, Amazing Words and Where They Come From. It's published by What on Earth Books and illustrated by Nicola Stevenson. So good morning, Patrick, and thank you for joining us today. Morning, it's great to be here. I wanted to start, before we go into talking about the books, I just have to ask you about that fascinating MA. Uh, would you call yourself a crypto-linguist? Is that the word? Well, perhaps. Um, it was a fascinating thesis. It was, um, I got very stuck into a very small subject, um, Part of the fascinating side of it is that this script I was working on is a really beautiful and not well enough understood and quite unknown script called Hieroglyphic Luwian. So it's this hieroglyphic script which has these fantastic symbols and it's just a joy to look at. And yet a lot of the symbols are still just not very understood. So it was a lot of fun being able to do that kind of groundwork investigation. I'm not sure I made anything that much clearer in the end, but there's certainly a lot of useful research in there, I think. So it was really fascinating, but very much a small topic in a way. I guess it's the, the process and uh, the endeavour um, that's as interesting perhaps as coming to any firm conclusion uh, at the end. So in a way, you're a little bit like the people who cracked the Rosetta Stone, but doing it for this other unknown script. Yeah, that, that would be fantastic. If, if that <laughs> anyway, we're going to talk today about Literally, and uh, it's, it is an amazing book because it's uh, only got 12 words um, and it looks at the history of language. Seemed to me like an impossible task, and yet I was really impressed with how much you've covered, how many important ideas about etymology. And I wondered whether you could take us through the steps in your dis decision making to arrive at those final 12. Sure. So I think one of the things to, that was always on my mind from the start was that you're not going to be able to give a real full picture of well even an overview picture of the history of a single language in such a short book in a picture book but what you can do is you can tell a bunch of different stories which cover lots of the really interesting sides of language and etymology in particular which which are also visible in any language but of course this book was looking taking english as its starting point and showing how that connects across the globe um so the 12 words was sort of a, a challenge more than it was a driving factor to try and condense everything down into that um, to make it really crisp. And so that meant being very picky about what each entry was trying to say, which hopefully I think worked quite well in the end. Um, but certainly from the start, I had hundreds 
of entries that I wanted to talk about. And then it was a case of pulling out from each of those what the story behind it was. So is that one an onomatopoeia or is it a word that tells us something about science? Or yeah, I had a lot of word Arabic words relating to science, for example, um, which I had to pick out my sort of favourite, which in the end I went with zero because it also has this interesting connection to Indian mathematics that goes back further. Um, but taking those lists and then breaking them down into the different stories. And then from that point of view, once you've, you've got rid of three quarters of them, starting to look at the, how the illustration would work and also to really dig into the research behind them, the accuracy of each entry, because linguistics is such a lively field, even a, quite an established kind of etymology or theory. There's quite a few people who will disagree with it. And I didn't want anything in this book, given there's only so much space to talk about it. I didn't really have, I knew I wouldn't really have the space to engage with major disagreements. So everything had to be quite solid and agreed. And that cut out quite a few entries, which are a lot of fun, but there's quite reasonable disagreement with their etymologies. And so eventually I ended up with 12 from that. Well, I certainly wouldn't have known where to start, so that's impressive to begin with. Uh, but I wonder if you could tell us about three words maybe that were on the shortlist but didn't make it to the final selection and what, the, what got them so far but then finally rejected. One that comes to mind definitely, which I was a bit gutted that I didn't get to include in the end, was chocolate, which is a Nahuatl, which is Aztec language origin. And that's, that is a case of, that was an accuracy one that etymology is thought to be something relating to bitter drink because they didn't have sugar to drink it with. And it was very much a invigorating bitter drink as opposed to the thing we're used to. Um, and I love food words and etymology of food words. So I was keen to put that in it, but it's just, it's too disputed, unfortunately. So that one had to go. And just thinking of some other ones, skunk was in there, which is from an Algonquian language from northeastern US and Canada. Um, that one was less the accuracy. It means peeing fox um, and was more what we were going to do with the illustration. How we, It seemed a shame with Nicholas's absolutely fantastic, beautiful artwork to be asking him to draw some kind of fox urinating or something um, as much as it's a fun etymology so in the end that one also had to go and just thinking uh, one of the other ones in there was banjo and this this was a case of sometimes the story is just too complex to really boil down into th this kind of uh, framework without introducing some kind of inaccuracy which wouldn't be right so this one Banjo is one which is probably Portuguese sort of borrowed through some unknown West African language and then borrowed into English. And the complexities of that story, while it's a really important story of how that could happen, um, just meant it, it, was gonna, it wasn't going to work. So those kind of things were a lot of the reasons why things got taken out. Either we couldn't make the artwork work or the story was too complicated or in most cases... I wasn't happy with the etymology and I had a lot of help from 
a former friend and postdoc at Leiden who was reviewing everything. So I'm very grateful to him as well for that. Mm. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Rejections can really give an insight into the process of working and you've given us a really good um, overview there. Uh, now, one of the words that you did include was uh, the word royalty, which was accommodated or borrowed into English from uh, the French during the Norman period. And you talk about the Normans' preference for retaining their French words. In my understanding, and you might be about to correct me because you're the expert, but um, I think that other examples from that period included the word odour rather than the English which is related to stink and mansion instead of the English word, which is related to house. Um, so what's interesting is that those French and old English words are both retained in modern English. I wondered if they tell us anything about how society was structured. They definitely do. I think the, the examples you've given are really interesting ones because you can see especially the mansion over house you can see the kind of stratification there that a mansion is clearly superior to a house um that i think in that particular example that that sort of starts to develop a bit later because like like you say these are at first the normans own words and they have the same variety of meanings that our own words would have had and then if they are to coexist they will take on something something of a more specialized meaning at some point or significance or feeling um and that's why an odor and stink you can think which you, you said you can think of using them in quite different contexts um but there's definitely an element of some of the vocabulary we do get from the normans as well really shows the kind of spheres that they operated in which other people didn't um so thinking of words like crown is a good one actually that we can sort of connect that to the normans and the significance of them taking that over that part of society that the royal part of it but that stratification of a lot of those words develops out of the, them coexisting because after a long time if a word doesn't really have its own place to live it's more likely to vanish so something like mansion and house obviously we look at modern french we can see that the word that comes from is actually more like just english house whereas an english mansion has much means a much more opulent kind of structure and that develops out of them coexisting um i think another thing which is really nice about learning about norman french is how their dialect is quite different to the primary kind of dialects and influences on French today. Um, so we have some things in English, which actually hark back to Norman French, which modern French doesn't have. For example, our words like war, whereas French has guerre, hark back to this Germanic origin of the Norman French, where that, that word ultimately came into English from, where you have that war sound, which the French that became modern French doesn't have. So you can get these, these sort of fossilized remnants of Norman French and English, which are just not visible in modern French, which is quite nice as well, I think. 
Well, it's it. the more you dig, the more fascinating uh, it becomes. And it kind of leads me on to the next question. And I might be going down a false path here. Uh, but if I am, I know you're going to uh, correct me. But one of the words uh, that you mentioned uh, being in use at that time was the word fall, uh, for which for us has been supplanted by autumn. Uh, but it's still used in American English. So I don't, did that come into the language as something in, in America that uh, travelled with the Pilgrim Fathers or had that taken a different route into American English? It's quite likely that it did, that they were using that word at the time. Um, it's attested from sort of the 17th century in British English as what we now would solely refer to as autumn in British English. Um, which would be about the right time, because the idea being, if it's attested from that period, it, in all likelihood, it would have been used before that period, at least for some time. Um, I mean, one of the things is that these words coexisted. So it's not, so autumn was, was a word that was used. It was probably just the most uncommon to refer to that. And, and another common one was just to refer to it as the harvest season. The fall word you can see where what it refers to really is just is those leaves falling off the tree. So there may well have been people in that original group who were using that word for autumn, and it survived because of that. Um, they might have all used the harvest season, but certainly at some point, someone over there was using the word fall, and that became the the standard in the same way that at some point over here autumn pushed out harvest and fall as the as the standard but american english is also is more conservative in, in a, actually a lot more places than people sometimes think especially how r's are pronounced a lot more in american english dialects than british english dialects and that that means that when we think of those times we may we may well be thinking of people who actually sounded a lot more like Americans today than British people today, if you see what I mean, which is quite an unusual thought when considering kind of period dramas and everything. Imagine that we maybe should have them slightly turned around and have them all played by American actors. Um, and then some of the vocabulary as well that, you know, there's some of the things like faucet and candy those also are more conservative. They go back further and they've been conserved in American English more than they have in British English. Teaches us not to be quite so snooty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think when, when we start to look at the history and that some of these words have a much older provenance than um, modern English. Um, one of my favourites in the book is Worm, and it is because I've always loved the old dragon tales and the worm is rising. It took me a long time to realise that was a dragon and not an actual worm <laughs> when I was growing up. Uh, one of the things that fascinates me about that word is that the pronunciation of it today is closer to that old English spelling. Who do you think is responsible for that? Yeah, that's a it's a really good question. Um, because, especially because it, it makes us start to look at English orthography and how confusing it can be at times. Um, and it, spelling itself just has so many great stories behind it. This type of 
spelling where you're totally right where you'd expect it spelled with a u probably as it was in old english if you look far enough back um and that would be much easier to understand it's not the only word like that there are a few others like tongue and perhaps most tellingly um monk as well which is it's quite easy to see the similarity and that that spelling convention comes from a habit of writing these as o's before n's and m's um in old manuscripts where you know you have those very compacted kind of letters in medieval manuscripts putting the u next to an n or an m they joined up and then the idea was that they made it very hard to read what were you looking at an r with an m or a, if you were looking at a u with an n was it actually an m and so the monks eventually just decided to just write it as an o and it stuck which is really frustrating because we've never managed to get rid of it but that that is part of the reason reason behind that and then everything becomes immortalized with printing and this kind of everything like that later on i'm guessing that the word wolf would be a similar case in point even though that kind of is followed by an L. It's the same idea, isn't it? Yeah, it may well be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so out of your 12 words, four of them are animals. That's a quarter of the book. You've got worm and kookaburra, caribou and jaguar. Um, and as I was looking, those uh, words tend to have come from indigenous languages. Are animals more likely to retain the names of given to them in indigenous languages than other words there's definitely an element of that i think part of the reason for choosing lots of animals as well is because animals are exciting and from all over the world there is, there is a lot of diversity there in terms of their global origins but that does connect to yes we we are more likely to find animal words perhaps than other ones that have origins in indigenous languages because we don't have words for them already in a lot of cases. So we're either tasked with making one up, and this, is, this goes for plants and f food in general as well, um, or we take them from whichever language we come into contact with there. So in those cases of, for example, caribou and jaguar, that, those have been picked up from a local language because we just we'd never come into contact with those animals before so we don't have a word for them whereas if we travel over there and we find a glacier or something well we've seen those we've got a word for them um or we find a big ocean we've seen those we've got a word for them um but we haven't ever seen a caribou or a jaguar so yeah either we come up with a new word ourselves and one that always comes to mind is pineapple for some reason or we take it from a local language. So that is a lot of what's behind those animals being a great place to look for etymology. The kookaburra one that's in there is also, you can, even though it's been taken from an indigenous language, you can see the onomatopoeic origin, I think quite easily even now. Um, so that's why it's a, it's a particularly nice one. There was another entry for the book, which I had to drop, um, which was raccoon, which is an Algonquian one, which is something like scratching with the hands, um, which I think fits really well. 
but it, it's it's another one where it's slightly hard to pin down exactly you know exactly the forms of it and exactly when and where it comes from so unfortunately I had to go interesting so it was goodbye to skunk and goodbye to raccoon yeah <laughs> you do in your uh, book you have the word safari and uh, one of the things that uh, you mentioned in the explanation here is uh, cognate in the Arabic language for safara or to, to journey. Um, I often introduce the idea of cognates into the classroom when I'm talking to teachers, just because it's a, an interesting way of showing the connectedness of people through the connectedness of languages. Uh, but once you get beyond European languages, it can be quite hard for the non-specialist anyway, uh, to find those cognates. Um, are there other interesting ones that we could explore in Asian and African languages? Yeah, sure, there, there are. Um, I think with, with cognates, one thing which can be useful to distinguish between when trying to understand what a cognate is, is things which develop from genetic relationships, which are not biological genetic, but as in languages developing into from other, from related languages, and then loan words that have been borrowed from other languages. Um, the second category across Europe, you know, the, a lot of those cognates are because there's a common origin for those languages rather than them being borrowed between them. That's why they have very similar things. Whereas if you're looking further afield, it's those loan words you want to be looking for, probably. And there's this concept of the, the Vondervoort, which is the wandering word, um, which is one which has made its way into tons of languages, some particular form. And then by sheer coincidence, all across the globe seems very similar, even if there's no real connection. Um, and T is usually given as a good example of that, where nearly every language has either a variant of chai or tea, tea coming from tiny, a single dialect in southern China. And that, that being a loan word, which is spread across the globe to every language, really. But for African languages, it can be a bit harder to pin, pin down really related cognates. Um, it can be harder to pin down exactly which particular language something comes from, even if you're quite sure of it having a, an origin in an African language. So I think of, for example, tango, the the dance is is well understood as being a dance which evolved from African and South American kind of cultural contact in South America um, and has an origin there but to, to really and there's tons of languages in West Africa which have similar words but to really pin down an exact one is quite hard but that is a word which would be the same in Spanish if you see what I mean mm -hmm. as it is in English um, but to really say exactly what its origin is, is quite hard. Um, whereas looking at, like you said, those European languages, a lot of European languages, the genetic connection means that the cognates are just really evident. But the, there is the, the other side of that is a lot of languages in India and Iran have um, similar connections to English in a similar way. So you can so a lot of words in Hindi, for example, have a surprise look surprisingly similar, even if they've not been borrowed into English from an in, an obviously Indian source. Like some some things which are you know quite often brought up, like pajama or something, are borrowed into English. 
um, whereas some Hindi words actually just look very similar because they're genetically related, like numbers look very similar in a lot of cases, the same as they do between, say, Russian and English or German and English. Absolutely fascinating. So um, when we're thinking about those African languages, we might be on firmer territory thinking about loan words rather than um, cognates as such. And it's really good to have that clear uh, distinction between the two but it will serve the same purpose at the end of the day which is looking at the for, for children in school anyway for looking at the connectedness of languages and how they travel um, around the globe um, I had one question because uh, I think it might just be a kind of myth but there are uh, people often cite the idea of um, the Inuit use uses of many different words for snow um, and I think there are competing arguments as to whether the number of words that you have for something like snow influences the way that you actually see the world. Um, is that true? There are still some people who, follow, who hold up that theory. It's not really very widely held anymore. Um, so that's the language relativity so just to explain maybe perhaps a bit more about what the idea there is, is that it's about this connection between what we think and how we speak and that that connection is a way of saying really that connection is much deeper than we appreciate. So what we think about the world is entirely connected in a cyclical fashion to how we communicate about it and they influence each other. So, for example, that would mean something like, well, one which is quite often given as well is, is that languages have different ways of talking about colour um and that if you don't have a word for a particular color that that hypothesis would mean that you actually don't experience it in the same way as someone else um there's more support for a kind of weaker one and for ones which focus more on say grammatical ideas like if you don't have an easy way to make possessives in a language that you might have as a culture less of a kind of idea of personal possession for example but those those kind of things have never really been proven very effectively in psychological tests which would be the place to show them um, and they also as a theory it's sort of development in there's a connect there's a connection to earlier theories of linguistic kind of exceptionalism so english-speaking people in or French-speaking people or whatever in different parts of the world, sort of seeing their language as a civilizing influence. So there is a where some of the, the roots of these theories are is in people saying, well, we see how to make the world more civilized and our language kind of reflects that. Um, and, and then terrible things obviously come out of that philosophy. Um, so it, it's, it's been mostly abandoned that kind of idea and more prominent really is as, as a driving factor in linguistics is to look for the underlying factors beneath every language um, which is what's called universal grammar this is more the the big theory that the underlying functions of every language is actually shared between all of them and that human beings have a shared way of speaking really when you break it down into very minimalist parts um 
so that that's current approach that current interest which i say is current but actually goes back a few decades um is more interested in finding those fundamental aspects i would say than trying to connect someone's language to to their understanding of the world because i think you would you would be concerned that actually what you're doing was trying to find connections between their language and how you think of them in the world the inuit one is is was originally devised sort of in comparison to english as a language with many thing many words for water and i i think that says as much about the person who devised it what they who was an english speaker what their opinion of british kind of culture was as opposed to what their opinion of inuit culture was perhaps mm. and that's one of the problems you've got to try and avoid if you want to prove a theory like that yeah uh some really good points so talking about universal grammar we're really going back to the ideas there of chomsky um and it's interesting that the inuit example that i quoted still per persists in kind of popular thinking uh, so it's good to be reminded um, uh, of the universal grammar. I'm just having a quick look at the time is whizzing by and it's it's so interesting talking to you. I must get in this uh, last question, um, which is about your research processes and your sources. It's so good in a children's book to see that these are referenced, albeit in the notes at the back. I think it's really important that we um, you know treat young people with that respect that uh we make evident that this has come from somewhere um talking about your own research for something like this book how do you like to approach that do you dip in serendipitously to find out what you can or are you very methodical um what, what's that process like i'm lucky enough to, that i had a bit of a bank of knowledge that obviously after after putting down on paper I would or writing down I would go and review you know to find actual sources to back it up um, so that that is a starting point there were books involved and articles involved and online research and I think after a while you have a sort of feel for what's reliable and what's not and what's um, what's reliable in the sense of okay that that may well be true but I need to go and find an article to back it up. The notes in the back actually um, don't carry the everything that was involved in it. They're quite brief about the primary sources involved, which is the Oxford English Dictionary is still very reliable for etymologies. But if you want to know more about a word, you then need to go further than that. Um, and then a few other dictionaries mentioned there. But there are a lot of articles used, many of which are online. So that that was the the research process really creating those lists as i mentioned at the start and then sort of paring them down as much as possible and then digging deeper into each of them to find something i could really trust so the research process was thorough definitely um and i think it's important that children's books are thoroughly researched um so that's why it's important to me to at least mention some of the sources in the back Fantastic. So I can't believe we've spent the last uh, 
half an hour or so talking about a book that has just 12 words at its core. Um, and I think talking to you, it's really evident uh, how much thought has gone into uh, producing the book. I've learned so much today uh, talking to you, Patrick. It's been an absolute uh, delight. So thank you so much for joining us in the Reading Corner. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.